Let me encourage you to take your Bible and turn again with me to 1 John chapter 2 this morning. 1 John 2. While you're turning, I ask you to consider a question with me. The question is this, does your behavior determine your identity or does your identity determine your behavior? I know it's just a few words, but in light of the culture we live in today and even just thinking about concepts like identity, it's like, wow, that's a lot to process. To go, does what I do determine who I am? Or does who I am determine what I do? Now, admittedly, I don't want to create a false dichotomy this morning. Uh, I think the answer to an extent is a little bit of both. There are things that we do and people look at what we do and go, oh, because you do that, here's who you are, and that's true. But I do believe biblically, creationally, if you will, because God made us, that most of who we are actually ought to determine what we do. Now, there are some ways profoundly where biblically we realize that needs to change um, because we are born in sin, and that needs to change. We want to be redeemed. We want to be saved. But again, we live in a culture right now, and in fact, I came across some different things this week that just reinforce this idea in my mind that more and more people are saying, no, you can be whatever you want to be, just do your behaviors, and that will determine your identity. If I can take that maybe a step further, and I don't want to create too much of a distraction, but I want you to see the point because it's very important to what we're getting at. Just take a very simple foundational thought related to me as well as to many of you. I would say I am a, in terms of identity, Christian man. Christian man. And there would be some who would say, well, how do you know man today? Right? There's a popular question being rolled around right now online with an interview and documentary to say, what is a woman? And people are being interviewed and saying, so define this. And people are like, I don't know. That's the 21st century in America, and unfortunately, sadly, many other countries around the world today as well. And yet for me, very clearly, my identity as a man, perhaps for you if you're here today as a woman, comes because God created me that way. In Genesis 1, chapter 27, or chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible makes it very clear that God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he them. Male and female created he them. The idea, the idea of my identity and my gender in my biology is assigned to me by God. And so that identity determines my behavior. I live out of that. Christian. Is my Christianity, is my identity defined by what I do? Well, I do this and I don't do this and I do this and I'm at church today and because I'm at church, I must be a Christian. You say, well, there's a sense in which that might be true. But biblically, we really need to realize I'm a Christian not because of what I do, but because of what God has done for me. Foundationally, my Christianity is salvation given to me by God, received by faith. And so my Christian identity is the result of believing on Jesus Christ, and I live that identity out. In other words, that identity as Christian determines my behavior. 
Again, there's a lot of religious teaching in this world today that would say, no, actually, you are a Christian because of what you do. And I said, no, actually, I'm a Christian because of what Jesus did for me. That identity then will change the way that I live. I'll give you one last example. I can already see some of you going, oh, my goodness. It's Sunday morning. We talked a little bit about marriage a couple weeks ago in the same respect. Two people stand on a platform like this one or they pledge vows to each other and in a moment they say, I do or I will, and they're married. Their identity, if you will, societally has changed. Now people look and go, husband, wife, married couple, right? That's who they are. If they wake up the next morning, in some romantic spot on some part of the world, and they don't feel like it. Like, I really just don't feel married. They are. And they would do well to live like it, right? To go, I want my behavior to line up with my identity as a husband or as a wife, to go, this is now who I am in a moment. Because they've been defined that way. It's become part of their identity. Let me just reinforce the idea about Christianity because texts like the one we're going to look at, we can begin to view ourselves incorrectly if we're not careful. There are two very foundational texts in the New Testament that remind us that we are saved by God's grace. We become a Christian by what God did for us, not what we do for ourselves. One, the most familiar of which is probably Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but I want to get into verse 10 as well. In fact, this came up in our Sunday school class this morning. For by grace are ye saved, not by what you do are you saved. A lot of religious teaching that would say that. The Bible says, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace, undeserved favor, you are saved. Through faith, through belief, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, not of what you do, lest any man should boast. But then it goes on to say, for we are his workmanship, we are created unto good works, right? The next of which is Titus 3, and I won't take time to go through every verse here. You can read it on your own, but Titus 3 verse 3 says, here's what you used to be. You were foolish. You were disobedient. Here's all the sins that used to define your identity. Here's what you were. And then verse 4 says, but after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. In the midst of that identity of sinfulness, God loved you and then we read those wonderful words in verse 5. So it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saved us. In other words, it's not, hey, I did lots of good works. And so God said, okay, yeah, you make it, Christian, because you did lots of good works. He said, no, it's not by works of righteousness which you have done. But according to his mercy, he saved me. And as a result, as he continues to unpack that. I have hope of eternal life, verse 7. I've been justified, declared right by his grace, verse 7. So verse 8, then I do good works. You see, John, the apostle, in writing 1 John is saying, here's what life in Christ looks like. We want to have fellowship with one another. We want you to have fellowship truly, ultimately. We want you to have fellowship with God the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We read that again in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. When that is true, and we have fellowship with God the Father, and we live as he intends, 
our joy is full, verse 4. So John is unpacking for us, your identity comes through faith in Christ, fellowship with God through Christ. But then the behavior that comes out looks a certain way. So, for example, 1 John 1, 5, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we claim to be a Christian, saved by faith, living out that identity means I walk in the light. I don't walk in darkness. I don't do the things that I used to do. If I'm saved, my identity is that of a Christian. God is love, so I walk in love. We'll see that more in 1 John 4, but it came up in what we read at the beginning of chapter 2, where the love of God is perfected, and we ought to walk even as Jesus walked. So this morning, we come to some verses here in chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. We actually started into this two weeks ago, but we come to this idea that then if we're a Christian, we love not the world. If my identity is I've been saved by Jesus Christ, I'm loving God and not loving the world. I'm seeking to move away from those things. We looked at it this way when we were together two weeks ago, our responsibility, verse 15, love not the world, and then we're given reasons. We only saw the first of those reasons two weeks ago. We'll see the second one tonight. The first of those reasons is this. Reason number one, love not the world because your identity determines your love. Your identity, my identity, determines what we love. If I'm a Christian, I love God and not the world. If, however, I am not a Christian, I'm going to love the world. I'm not going to love God. Now, again, keep in mind what I said just a minute ago. Our identity needs to determine our behavior. It's not, well, okay, so if I love God enough and don't love the world, then he'll save me. No, that's not the point here. The point that he's making here is if I'm continually loving the world, it's antithetical to a love for God. It can't coexist with a love for God because, verse 15, again, love not the world, and then at the end, if any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is what he said so clearly, so directly. Like, if, if I love the world, then I don't love God. It can't be both, right? We, again, we use the example of a marriage. We would think it unthinkable, unacceptable for someone to pledge their love to their spouse and then also claim to love another individual. So that's wrong. Biblically, John is saying, you know, if, if I say I love God, but I love doing worldly things, there's a problem. Both can't exist. James 4 made it very clear, did it not? Verse 4, James says, ye adulterers, ye adulteresses, those who've been unfaithful, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God. I can't claim both. So for all Christians here this morning, we ought to once again look at this text and say, God, what do I need to change? God, how do I make sure that I love you and not this world? Because this world has a strong pull on us. There is this part of our heart, even to this day, that still goes, well, that seems good. I, I want that. And the text is saying, don't be loving the world. As we looked at this last week, we saw this uh, two weeks ago, we saw this reason, because your identity determines your love, and we looked at it as a statement of condition. But as we come to verse 16, I want us to see today the statement of explanation. The statement of explanation 
Notice with me first, it's issued comprehensively in verse 16 when it says, all that is in the world. In just a few words, and we'll see them in just a few minutes, he's going to elaborate as to what does all that mean categorically. He's going to give us three categories to define what's all that is in the world. But before we get into the details of those, I just want you to realize that he starts out with a very broad statement, a very comprehensive statement to say everything that's in the world has this problem. Later on, at the end of the verse, he's going to say, is not of the Father, but is of the world. How that manifests itself, we're going to look in just a moment again, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. How that manifests itself goes all over the board. It can show up in absolutely selfish, sin-based, sensual kind of living. But it can also show up in self-oriented, self-justifying, religious thinking as well. I say that because often we hit this text, we go one, we go kind of to the license end of things and not to the legalistic side, but there are several other epistles in our New Testament that go both ways with this same concept. Galatians being a great example. Galatians is a letter written to people who are thinking they can earn their salvation. And in the midst of that, they are warned about the lusts of the flesh. Saying, you know what, it can show up in sensual, self-indulgent kind of living, or it can show up in self-justifying religious behavior. So Paul, at the end of that letter, is going to say this in Galatians 6, verse 14. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. He's saying, I'm going to glory in Christ, not just religious activity or uh, selfish living. Colossians makes the same point there as well. Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you with philosophy, vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. As you work through the end of Colossians 2 into Colossians 3, you find out that involves error on both sides of the dish, a ditch. Flesh-based living, whether in self-righteous legalism or self-indulgent license, is dangerous. So we don't follow the world's mindset. Before we get to the three statements in the middle of verse 16, jump down to the end of the verse with me for just a moment. We say the statement of explanation is issued comprehensively, everything, all that is in the world. But notice it's communicated emphatically. We might also say divisively. Is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is, again, one of those points where John wants to be very clear. If I love the things that we're looking at, if I repeatedly give in to them, pursue them, want them, desire them, I need to realize this has nothing to do with God the Father. I can't let myself off the hook, no matter how much I want to minimize it, marginalize it, dismiss it, ignore it, not think about it. This is the truth. This is not of God the Father. It is of the world. I will admit, there are times where we hit issues and it's like, so is, is this wrong? Is this right? Is this okay? And the very conscientious get very torn up in those things. And there are wonderful ways in which the Bible helps us address those kinds of issues, like in 1 Corinthians 8 to 10, or Romans chapter 13 and Romans 14 as well. Currently, we live in a world, though, that likes to paint everything as unclear. What's right to you is right. What's right to me is right. 
It doesn't matter if what's right to you is right for you is different than what's right to me is right. We don't have to agree. A statement like John just made pushes against that so strongly. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. All that is in the world, and he goes through it, lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. It doesn't matter if I like or agree. That's the truth God has given me through John. God has given us. What is addressed here that we look at this morning is very clear. It's not, it is dangerous for the believer. It cannot be that which drives my life. I think it's helpful because, again, we live in a day where things like that tend to get distorted or unclear, and my mind, again, goes to the book of James. James chapter 1, James is making it very clear. When you walk through hard, difficult, sinful kind of things, understand that does not come from God. He says there in James chapter 1, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. It is inconsistent with God's character to cause you to fail in temptation. He does not do that. Rather, every man is tempted when he begins to desire something that is wrong, that is sinful. It says, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. It's not God's fault, it's mine. And in verse 16, he says, do not err, beloved brethren. He says, don't get this confused. What does God give you? Every good and every perfect gift. What God puts in the believer's life is good. It's perfect. It's complete. He never wavers in doing so. That's what comes from God. But when I struggle, when I give in to sin, that is my fault. That is me. As we come back to 1 John, the statement of explanation is issued comprehensively. It's communicated emphatically. But third, notice with me, it's focused internally. We might say it's focused attitudinally as well. It's focused internally. Notice here, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, all that is in the world. Like, okay, so tell me what that means. And what we might want is a list of material things or objects. And instead, he points to internal desires. It's like, okay, you need to wrestle through this. Like, he could have said, all that is in the world, like the entertainments of the Roman theater. You know that debauchery that takes place in the Roman theater? Don't love that. He could have done that. That did exist. You read about it historically, and you're like, I don't think I should read this. He could have gone there, but he did not. He could have said, what about the enticements of the commercial district? What about the sensual debauchery of worship? Like we begin to glimpse it in Ephesus in Acts 17 or in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 8. And you're like, oh, that's not good. He could have said all that is in the world and started to list out places, things, events, and said, stay away from that. And that would be helpful because certainly those things are in view in some of what's said here. Just like today, we could start to go down and go, so what about that show? What about that music? But what he does here is so much bigger and broader than that. In which case, I am responsible and you are responsible to go, God, what have you put in your word? What does your spirit say to me? So that I can say, God, 
by the best of my ability. I want to love you, which means I don't want to love these things. I want to stay away from these things because I love you because of the love that you have shown to me. God, you have loved me so immensely. My desire is to please you, so help me understand what it looks like to do these things. I think it's a wonderful thing, although perhaps maybe a difficult thing, to realize these are focused internally. So I challenge you this morning to, in your own mind before God, go, how do I avoid these things? Because at the end of the day, you don't answer to me. You don't, like, you're not going to stand before God and go, God, I think I did pretty well with Pastor Brabson's checklist. I'll give you some ideas of applications we work our way through, but I want to, at the start, keep it as broad as the text does for your benefit and for mine. Yeah, and sometimes we go to texts like this and we're looking for a thou shalt not, right? And that's not what he gives us, other than thou shalt not do the lusts of the flesh. Whoa, those could be a lot. Thou shalt not do the lusts of the eyes. Whoa, that could be a lot. That's where we're at. I think it's helpful, by the way, because if he had given specific examples we would, our heart, the way we're wired, would find all ways to go, well, you know, culturally in that day, like this is a very common thing in Christianity today, Christianity, to go, oh, well, we don't have to do that because you have to understand culturally at that time, and, and we begin to dismiss things. And so if it was like, well, the Roman theater, well, it's like, you know, it's different today because, and it's not the same. Like, God gave us principles and command here, and he gives us his spirit to go, hey, watch your heart there. Because the hard issues through time have been the same struggle, but the manifestations have changed over and over and over and over. And what we're tempted with battle today will be different 10 years from now. Always changing, but the heart is not. We've been told, love not the world. Now we're being given a further description of what it means, what's in the world. For the benefit of our application, we're going to consider these as action items. Okay, I realize their statements, lust of the flesh, and we can go, okay, let's treat that categorically. I'm going to challenge you with it. I'm going to challenge me with it. We're going to give it as an action statement. So the first point here, we look at this internal focus. Number one, guard the desires of your heart. Guard the desires of your heart. We come to this phrase, the lust of the flesh. Simply put, the lusts of the flesh are the sinful desires of our hearts, the sinful desires of our flesh. The flesh is that part of us that still desires to live for ourselves rather than God. When we wake up, we wake up, I, every morning I wake up, I wake up with me, right? And there's days where it's like, yeah, it's easy to get out of my bed, go read my Bible, pray, talk to God. And then there's days where it's like, right, it's Sunday, great, let's go to church. Church? Because the desires... Sometimes you wake up and you're like, I don't want to be a parent today. Sometimes your children are like, yeah, I'll obey, Mom. Great. Glad to do it. And there's times where you're stomping your feet every step of the way. If we know Jesus Christ as Savior, we have to guard the desires of our heart and go, that's wrong. Got to fight that. Got to push against it. My heart wants to do wrong today. I, I have to work on that. 
The flesh has been defeated. We know that from Romans 6. You're dead indeed under the flesh, but alive under the Spirit. But Romans 7, Paul also says, hey, I want to do what's good, but I'm doing what's bad. I don't want to do what's bad, but that's what I'm ending up doing. He recognizes the battle that takes place against the flesh. I already referred to Galatians 5, but if you remember, Galatians 5 verse 16 says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But it tells us that the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that you cannot do the things that you would. I hope you realize there is a battle taking place. If we sit here and we're like, I I really don't know what that looks like in my life, I'm probably losing the battle. Because there is this pull, these desires to do what's wrong. And we have to go, no, I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to do what God desires. I'm not going to give in to sin. I'm not going to use my words in that way. I'm not going to look at that. I'm not going to think that way. Again, simply put, there is an enemy. There's a mindset of this world that wants you to desire and temporarily enjoy that, which in the long run will destroy you because of the enticement to selfishness and sin. There's this desire to keep, lead you along, lead you along, lead you along. And it's leading you away from God to the destruction of sin. It's the lust of the flesh. Again, it shows up on TV, shows up on the internet. It shows up in the words and values of people around you. It shows up in your words and values. shows up at points in mine. It shows up in music. It's everywhere. And I, I want to point you to another text. First Peter, I think, says it very well. Peter in First Peter says it very well in chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Peter's writing to people who've been persecuted because of their Christianity. Like, their life is harder than you and mine, yours and mine. Their Christianity and faith has been tested in ways that ours has not. He can go, you know what, I'm going to give you a pass. You've been really faithful. You're not even in your homeland. You had to leave because you've been persecuted. And yet he says, no, now listen, guys, I, I love you, dearly beloved, I love you. But you need to live like foreigners. Like, yeah, we get that. We're not even home. No, not, not foreigners of, of your hometown, foreigners of this world. Because your citizenship belongs somewhere else. It's in heaven. So abstain from fleshly lust. They are warring against your soul. There's a constant battle being waged to go live for this, give in to this. And he says, the world's not your home. Fight against those sinful desires. So I hope you see again this morning that there is a push to desire what God has prohibited and to take what is more than God has allowed. I think this idea of lust of the flesh goes towards both what is inappropriate and what is inordinate. Okay? What is inappropriate and what is inordinate. There are things God has said that is off limits you cannot, don't, never. And then there are things that God has said, here's a good gift. And as our hearts are wired, we begin to live for that gift instead of the giver. 
In essence, we make idols out of a gift of God. In fact, it's interesting. At the very end of his letter, the last thing John's going to say is, little children, keep yourself from idols. Right? We don't want to take that which God gives as a good gift and have an inordinate desire. You're like, well, give me an example. Think about the Proverbs and the instructions about gluttony. Here's a desire of my flesh. I just want more. I just want more. I'm going to find satisfaction in this. I know I haven't prayed and I haven't read my Bible, but if I just indulge here, the Bible says, no, that's wrong. It's a lust of flesh. It's an inordinate desire for what God has given. I think Paul Tripp does say it well that he says a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. I could take God's good gift turn it into an idol that I worship and I live for instead of ultimately using it to say, God, thank you. I'm going to glorify you for this instead of, no, I'm going to live for this. Watch out for the lust of the flesh, both in inordinate or in inappropriate desires. It could be a desire for power and control. Again, it could be some kind of substance abuse or overeating. Certainly is true in our world today in pornography, in all immorality, it could be what I take in in entertainment, going, you know what, I, I know I shouldn't watch, but I just have to, and as a result, I'm just going to continue to indulge myself, I'm going to neglect my responsibility as a spouse, I'm going to neglect my responsibility as a parent, I'm going to neglect my responsibility as a Christian, because I just have to please myself. I tell you, i got to watch, because there is a war being waged for my soul. So, love not the world. Don't live for pleasing your flesh. Again, I would admonish us that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17. We are told in Proverbs 4 to be keeping our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We're told in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, that we keep under our bodies and bring them into subjection going, okay, there, there is this pull to live for me. There is this pull to give in to that, whatever it may be. You go, no, love not the world. All that is in the world, including the desires of my sinful flesh, is not of the Father, but is of the world. So I'm going to recognize that as a stranger or foreigner here, I'm going to abstain from fleshly lust, warring against my soul. I like the simple words of Romans 13, 14. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill it in the lust thereof. Don't give yourself an out. Don't give yourself an excuse. Don't plan and make allowance for sin. Watch out for the desires of the flesh. We've been called to love something more. We're not only called to guard the desires of our heart, so we love not the world and the lust of the flesh. Secondly, we guard the direction of our eyes. We guard the direction of our eyes and the lust of the eyes, he says. Just this past week, I was watching something that noted that our eyes account for 80% of how we process information around us, more than any of our sense, other senses. You know, we, we have a sense of taste, which I'm glad we don't process a whole lot of our world by taste right? Um, we have touch, we hear, we smell. Kind of glad we don't process as much of the world with smell. 
But 80% of how we process the world around us is what we see. And if you start to think about it, you're like, actually, that makes a lot of sense to me because I'm constantly evaluating, what do I see? Who's tired in the room? Who's distracted in the room? Who's hungry in the room? I don't smell that. I'm really glad I don't taste that, but I do see that. Right? We need to be very careful what we see. And here, the Spirit of God through James is saying something that is biblically important but practically obvious. Watch out for what your eyes desire. Love not the world by guarding the direction that your eyes go in, how your heart begins to process that and want that. Many have pointed this text and coincided it with Genesis chapter 3 where man sins for the first time. I think well so, going... Here's lust of the flesh, here's lust of the eyes, here's pride of life. But just for a moment, consider with me the words of Genesis 3, verse 6, where Satan has tempted Eve to eat of the tree that God has forbidden. And in verse 6, it says, The woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes. Again, it does not say she smelled it. It's like, I'm looking at it. Man, that looks good. But God said, no, but that looks good. And as a result, the, word, the verse concludes with those tragic words, she took the fruit thereof, did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. Guard the direction of your eyes, because all that is in the world, including the lusts of the eyes, is not of the Father. I think that word lust is really important because there are things that our eyes are going to see and we're going to have to train our brain how to process those. You see, Eve saw the tree, but she did not have to lust after the tree. But Genesis 3, verse 6 that we just read shows that she begins to lust after the tree. Man, that looks good. Man, that's pleasant. Instead of going, you know what, I need to think what is true and honest and lovely and Good report in Philippians 4, 8 and go, the truth is, God created that. He's forbidden that. No. But instead, she desires what he has forbidden. Scripture repeatedly admonishes us to be careful what we look at as well as how we process what we see. So, for example, many of you be familiar with the, uh, Psalm 101, verse 3. We read those familiar words, I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. Psalmist gives a clear statement, going, you know what? I'm going to make sure that before my eyes, I don't put anything wicked. Like, I don't want to go there. And yet in our world today, we're bombarded with images, right? You're driving around, you're in the grocery store, you're on your phone, you're uh, watching television. Like, images are everywhere. And we need to be doing the best that we can to go, I don't live for this world. Love not the world. Watch out for the lust of the eyes. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I wonder if you would be comfortable adopting the psalmist's statement when it comes to your own entertainment. Seems relatively prudent, doesn't it? Lord, what I watch, what I see, I want to make sure I'm not putting something wicked that's uh, displeasing to you in front of my eyes. Keep in mind, again, in context of First John um, 2, as we consider this thought, this isn't about some kind of legalistic self-righteousness. This is simply about loving God. 
right? We, in a marriage, we would go, hey, we want someone to be so in love with their wife, they're not going to look at others with lust or love, right? And yet somehow when we come to something like this, it's like, well, yeah, I love God, but man. And we give ourselves a pass on covetousness, on lust, on looking for things that God in his wisdom said, no, I'm not going to give you that. That's not God's fault. That's my fault. That's your fault. God doesn't tempt any man. Words speaking to men, particularly of Job 31 or Matthew 5 or Job and Job 31 says, I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? It's directly dealing with the issue of lust and sensuality. Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, when he takes the commandments and ups them every time, comes to the one of committing adultery and says, but I say unto you that whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Again, the issue being watch the direction of your eyes. Guard how your heart processes what you see. Love not the world in what you look at doesn't matter if you're here, man or woman, young or old, child or adult. The world wants to put things in front of your eyes. The devil wants to put things in front of your eyes to go, you need that. You want that. You must have that. And God, for whatever reason, even if it's a good thing, may have said, no, I'm not giving that to you right now. For example, this could simply show up in covetousness. I just want the latest and greatest. I really could use a new phone. I, I just saw it. And the, man, the price. And, uh, and we're all of a sudden dealing with a really, what should be insignificant heart issue. Instead of just going, God, it's not what you have for me right now. Could be fashion. Right? I, I just want to be identified in a certain way and I have to look a certain way. And I, I just... I, and all of a sudden, I'm very concerned about what other people will think based on how I look because of what I saw that others are doing, and I want to be identified that way. And there's a heart battle taking place instead of going, you know, what has God said foundationally about what I should wear? What does God want me to do in that regard? Lust the eyes. What I see has determined now how I think, how I live, instead of God going, what has God said? Again, think about all the ways we take this in through our eyes. It could be the video games that you play, the books, the novels that you read, the things you see on your phone, on television, on social media, through the ads of marketing. All this stuff is coming at us going, you want this, you need this, you have to have this, you'll be viewed this way. This will make you happy. Instead of saying, no, I don't live for here. Love not the world in the lusts of the eye. Because all that is in this world is not of the Father. Do you love God and others? Two thoughts this morning. Because your identity should determine your love. Guard the direction of your eyes and guard the desires of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we've looked at simple thoughts, simple words here in a very familiar text. I know from the truth of your word, I realize from experience, I realize from pastoring that there is a battle that's going on. 
And so, Lord, we've taken a lot of time just to walk through some simple statements. And God, I would ask that by your Spirit, you would help believers here see where that battle is raging in their own hearts. Where the pull to love the world is strong. Where there's a need to turn from those lusts to have a greater love and commitment for you. Lord, I pray that each of us would carefully be tending to the desires of our heart, that we would not love the world in the lusts of the flesh. Lord, I pray that you would also help us to guard the direction of our eyes, that we would be able to battle the lusts of the things that we see. Lord, we know from your word, and if we're honest, we do see it in personal experience, that you have been so good to us in giving us so many good gifts. That, Lord, I pray that we would accept what you have given to us, what you've entrusted to us, that we would enjoy those things as gifts from you, giving praise to you for them. That in turn, we would then not be tempted to love the world. God, as I prayed earlier, we're humbled that you have loved us through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that our commitment in action and love would grow as a result of our time in your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name I pray.